everyone and welcome to the, another episode of the Peripheral Society podcast. It's Hannah Squire here today and I'm joined by the wonderful Dr Amy Lynn at the Stanley Spencer Gallery. Dr Amy Lynn curated the current exhibition here, Most Love Works, and the 2021-2022 exhibition, Mind and Mortality, Stanley Spencer's Final Portraits. She's also curator of the Farrington Collection at Buscot Park, a National Trust House in Oxfordshire, which has a significant collection of Pyrophilite works, including Edward Burne Jones' amazing Briar Rose series. Amy also works as a freelance researcher and is currently researching 19th century women artists for a forthcoming exhibition of Tate Britain. Incredible. So I actually came across Stanley Spencer's work when I was on Tate at the museum's website, and there's a quote from there that says, Spencer maintains an attention to detail in his paintings akin to that of the Pyrophilites. So I really thought for this episode it would be great to explore a 20th century artist's oeuvre that on the face of it may appear very different to the Pyrophilite movement, but in which interesting connections can be found. So first of all, can I ask you, who is Stanley Spencer? Tell us a bit more about his life and career and the art movements that inspired him. Great. Well, um, so Stanley Spencer was one of the greatest British painters of the 20th century. He was born in 1891 and he died in 1959, so that takes him really through that period of modern British painting. Um, he was born here in Cookham, just a few, a couple of hundred metres down the road from where we are now. Um, and although he did live in a couple of other places, he spent most of his life in Cookham and he in fact died um, in uh, the Clifton War Memorial Hospital, which is just um, a mile or two from where we are now. And Cookham was absolutely part, uh, fundamental to his life and his understanding of life, and it recurs again and again throughout his paintings. There is sometimes a kind of misconception that Spencer was a little bit of a, um, a kind of rural outlier um, because of this village upbringing and village life that he had, but actually he was quite um, highly educated, albeit in an unconventional way. So he attended school in his back garden in a shed. His, his sisters ran a small home school and he and his younger brother Gilbert were schooled at home um, until he went to Maidenhead Technical Institute at the age of 15 where he started formal training as an artist. But just because he was homeschooled didn't mean that they weren't actually a very intellectually sophisticated family. So his, his father was a musician, he was a church organist and music teacher, um, and the whole family were an incredibly musical family. Spencer was a big piano player, um, he had one brother who was a professional musician, um, and they also discussed literature and politics and philosophy around the kitchen table. So he had a very um, intellectually stimulating upbringing. And then after a couple of years at Maidenhead Technical College, he went to the Slade School um, in London. And he was there from um, 1908 to 1912, which was the time when there was the absolutely brilliant generation of new young British artists um, amongst them were Christopher Nevinson, Mark Gertler, David Bomberg, Dora Carrington, um, and in fact Mark Gertler later said that Spencer was the brightest of their generation. So he had a very family-focused Cookham upbringing, but he also had a 
formal art training at the leading art school in London at the time. And those two things were really very formative on his, on his life and career. Amazing, thank you. And can you tell us a bit more about this space and, and the collection that you have here? Yeah, so uh, the Sunny Spencer Gallery is really unique in that we are in a former Wesleyan chapel that Spencer used to work, worship in when he was a child. Um, and after Spencer died in 1959, a group of his friends got together and decided to uh, support his legacy by forming the Sunny Spencer Memorial Trust. And the chapel, which had been deconsecrated and, and was no longer in use, was taken over as a gallery. And a few key works were donated or purchased or given on long-term loan. Um, and the Stanley Spencer Gallery was opened in 1962, so we had our 60th birthday last year. And we're also quite special in that we are entirely run by volunteers, which is very unusual, if not exceptional. We don't have a single paid member of staff, so um, I volunteer as a curator, um, and all of my colleagues give their time for free. We have a lot of people who are local, so we're very, very tied into the community, um, which was really the, the origins of the gallery. But we also have a lot of people who have professional museum backgrounds or business backgrounds, so we are um, I would say we're professionally run, but we're professionally run on a voluntary basis. Mm -hmm. I think that's so wonderful to have that sort of passion for him to come and volunteer. Is there a way actually any of our members can support you donation-wise or a way they can get involved to help? Absolutely. Um, well, firstly, anybody that's local, we would love you to come and, and um, volunteer your time here at the gallery. And there are all sorts of different ways that you can get involved. And I, I really enjoy working as a custodian because... I get to talk to the visitors and learn a huge amount about Spencer and uh, from them. Um, we're always delighted to receive donations. You can join the gallery as a friend of the Sandy Spencer Gallery and you only really need to come twice in a year to make your money back, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, and we have two exhibitions a year, so we don't have um, all of our collection on display at once. We have um, to changing exhibitions, summer and winter, and we bring out different works from the collection and um, supplement those with loans. So it's well worth becoming a friend. Um, so yes, anybody who'd like to um, get involved, please get in touch. Yeah, it's an amazing collection and a beautiful place. I've never been to Cookham before. Driving through it is such a beautiful place to visit. Yeah, it's really lovely and we're so close to the Thames. We get a lot of walkers and we must be one of the very few um, museums and galleries who get a substantial proportion of their visitors arrive by boat. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> that's a beautiful way to arrive by boat. So, uh, we mentioned kind of uh, pre World War One, so I wanted to ask you yeah. a bit as well. But while serving the World War One, First World War, Spencer wrote letters home to his sister in which he requested more paints, please. It's lovely to see it, you know, working front line, he was still kind of engaged in his art and books on Giotto and Botticelli. Both Giotto and Botticelli and other Italian artists really inspired yeah. many of the Pre-Raphaelites. So I wanted to ask you what inspiration did Spencer take from these early Italian painters? And is that inspiration, would you say, similar in some way to the Pre-Raphaelites? Yeah, certainly. Um, I actually have um, examples of some of those books that he requested from his sister. Um, I don't have Giotto or Botticelli. Um, I have got here uh, Andrea del Sarto, early Flemish painters, and Van Dyck. But these are in a, a series that were called Gowan's Art Books. Um, and they were one of the kind of core uh, elements of Spencer's art and historical education. And we know that he took these away to war with him. Um, he was hugely influenced by the early Italian painters, um, particularly 
Giotto, Masaccio, um, Fra Angelico. Um, and that, that influence came to him in a number of different ways. It was partly through um, books like these, and also when he was studying at the Slade, he would go to the National Gallery, and we know that he went to look at um, works like uh, Botticelli. Um, he also learned about them through Roger Fry's art history lectures when he was a student at the Slade. But he did also, um, thanks to research that Carolyn Leader did when um, she was a curator here at the gallery for many years and is a great Spencer expert, we know what Spencer had on the wall of his family home as well. Um, and they actually had a print of Rossetti's um, Ecce Ancilla Domini on the wall, um, which is a very much a kind of um, early, one of the most early Italian of the pre-Raphaelite um, paintings. There were also a couple of Millet um, prints as well. And then he would have seen other ones in books. Um, and so Spencer really took these ideas of simplicity and um, the primitivity on board. And you see those come out, particularly in his early paintings. Um, but there was another really significant artist, and I have another prop for us here today. Um, which, uh, sorry, not artist, but influence, which is John Ruskin. And so we know that Spencer read quite a lot of Ruskin. Both Ruskin's views on the early Italians and Ruskin's views on the pre-Raphaelites. Um, so he read modern painters, um, which we know because he wrote a comment in a letter to a friend. In fact, he said, um, uh, I've been reading modern painters and Ruskin is, um, you know, he's a bore and he's wrong, um, but he's also a very fine writer and he says some very fine things. And I think many listeners can probably um, sympathise with that slightly conflicted view of Ruskin. Um, but in, in 1911 or 1912, Spencer was also given um, a copy of this book, which is Giotto and his works in Padua. He was given it by his friend Gwen Darwin. Um, and this was a really influential text. Um, and this is the same edition that um, Spencer would have had. And I read this trying to think about it through Spencer's eyes, if you like, thinking about the paintings that he went on to do. And time and again, you can see the influence of Ruskin's writings coming out in Spencer's works. Um, so, for example, um, just to read you um, a short extract, Ruskin here is talking about Giotto. He says it was simply by being interested in what was going on around him, by substituting the gestures of living men for conventional attitudes and portraits of living men for conventional faces and incidents of everyday life for conventional circumstances that he became great and the master of the great. Giotto was to his contemporaries precisely what Millet is to his contemporaries, a daring naturalist in defiance of tradition, idealism and formalism. The Giottesque movement in the 14th and the pre-Raphaelite movement in the 19th centuries are precisely similar in bearing and meaning. So I think for Spencer, you have the pre-Raphaelite, uh, sorry, you have the 14th century, or oh, uh, 15th century Italian painters being translated through the pre-Raphaelites and through the writings of Ruskin into his own works. Um, and then what we can do now is have a look at some of the works in the gallery and talk about how those ideas of the importance of sincerity and of simplicity um, and of setting 
religious scenes in a real life location, which you can see in the pretty Raphaelite paintings, how those translate into some of Spencer's works. I love that quote, daring naturalist. I love yeah. that, and that focus on attention to detail in nature, which the boating has so much in common. Yeah. So wonderful, let's have a look around. So Amy, could you tell us a bit about this painting and about uh, Stanley Spencer's relationship to religion and rooting it in contemporary life, which is very Raphaelite-esque? Yeah, it is indeed. And religion was a really important part of Spencer's life, even though his own personal theology was quite unorthodox. Um, and I think that his um, belief in the fundamental importance of religious painting, again, was something that was uh, coming out of Ruskin, and Ruskin writes about how all progressive art is religious art. Um, and I think that's something that the pre-Raphaelites were taking on board and that Spencer was taking on board. So you can very broadly divide Spencer's work into two um, very broad categories. One is imaginative paintings, which includes his religious works, but it's not exclusively religious, and the other is when he painted from life, such as portraits and landscapes. And many of his imaginative paintings, which were his favourite works that he most loved to work on, many of those took real biblical scenes and set them in a very contemporary and recognisable Cookham landscape, which is what the pre-Raphaelites were doing. So um, I think of Millet's Christ in the House of His Parents, which is a biblical scene, but it's so real in terms of the detail and what is going on in that. And Spencer, in his own way, although stylistically different, has taken very much the same concept on board. So what we're looking at here is a, uh, is a painting, The Last Supper, um, of Christ and his disciples sitting around three sides of a table in a large brick building. And this brick building is actually the loft, house, the loft of the malt houses, which were a real location in Cookham, just at the end of Spencer's family um, garden, and only a couple of hundred metres from where we are now. And the reason why Spencer chose that as a location was because he wasn't allowed into the malt houses as a child, and so it had a, a mystery about it and an excitement. And so he took the feeling of mystery and he has translated that into this painting of the Last Supper to try to capture some of the feelings that he felt about the place. Um, but I think you can see in this, in the simplicity of the robes, um, of the folds, the angular shapes of them, there is something quite grotesque in the way that he's painted the disciples. But then, looking at the brickwork, these bricks are incredibly detailed, and he has lavished so much love and attention onto the bricks. And that, for me, also is a pre-Raphaelite-esque way of looking at the material world, um, the, the care and the attention that has, has gone into it. And as well as this being a location that existed, are the, are the people in it portraits of people who knew that they um, In this particular case, no, I don't think so. But in some of his other paintings, very much so. Um, and so, actually, if we just step back, you may be able to uh, just see Christ preaching at Cook and Regatta, uh, which was one of his last paintings. And this is an uh, imaginary scene as if Christ came down to the regatta in Cookham, which was one of the big social events of the season, and that's Christ sitting there in the basket chair with a red flowery cushion behind him. 
but there is a man standing with white trousers and a white shirt and his hands in his pockets. And he's a real person. He's the proprietor of the ferry hotel. Um, and he's surveying all of the customers that he's going to be making lots of money from at this big event. Um, and in fact, the ferry hotel is still there. You can still go and have a lunch in the pub by the river. So I know that local people could recognise, you know, some of paintings. I yes, like yeah. And just going back to this, I do love the... Um, the scarcity of colour, and it, like you said, it reminded you of being inspired by Giotto. I think in a very similar way, Elizabeth Siddle was inspired by this too, with the focus on the um, simplicity of the style, and the focus on I think, really the hands and the faces. The bodies are kind of superfluous, and I love the feet. Yeah, I love the feet <laughs> centre stage, and they're all kind of individual of their own sort of character. They're almost like wings, aren't they? Where the, the feet are <laughs> crossed, um, and the, I, I think. I spent a lot of time looking at this painting when I was uh, writing the catalogue entry for it for our new catalogue because I wanted to think about something that hadn't been written about before. And I think that this is an absolute masterpiece of composition. Spencer, we know that he was thinking about this painting for about five years before he completed it. And it's, it looks very simple, but it's actually incredibly sophisticated. Um, it's extremely symmetrical. You could you could draw an imaginary imaginary line down the middle of the canvas, and it's very very balanced. So, for example, you have three people with beards in his Christ in the centre, and then there are a disciple on his right and a disciple on his left with beards, and everybody else is clean shaven. Um, we have a row of disciples here leaning out their arms onto the table and they're balanced on the left-hand side by um, four disciples raising their palms to the table. And so it's symmetrical, but the symmetry is broken in order to create points of drama. And that's most particularly the case here with the disciple leaning his head onto Jesus' breast. And on the other side, the disciple who's Judas is cringing away as though he's feeling guilty because he knows he's shortly going to be betraying Jesus with a, with a kiss. And so it's, a, it, it's deceptively simple, mm. but really a, a compositional masterpiece. Oh, beautiful, thank you for sharing this. I think we're now going to move upstairs and look at another theme, so thank you. So moving on from religion, now I'm really focusing on nature and the inspiration here. Could you talk a bit about these two? Thank you so much for getting them out of the store for us, these paintings. Yeah, no, I'm delighted to get them out because they're a really phenomenal example of um, Spencer's landscape paintings. So I said that he had two different types of works, religious and painting from life, and he did paint a lot of landscapes, and his landscapes were very, very popular, and they sold very well in his lifetime. Um, and these two particular landscapes were painted for one of his patrons, Gerald Shield, of his house in Cookham. So yet again, it's another location that is really, really close to where we are now. Um, one is a view of the house called the Englefield, and the other is the view from the house towards Cookham. Um, and I should say that all of our artworks are um, visible on Art UK, so anyone can have a look to see these paintings in more detail. But I think that what we have in these two landscapes is an incredible fidelity to nature and microscopic attention to detail that is really characteristic of pre-Raphaelite landscapes. Um, so looking at this painting of Englefield House, the detail of the trees, of the individual leaves, um, of the flowers, but also very pre-Raphaelite-esque, I think, is a refusal to privilege one part of the composition mm. over another. And actually, there is a kind of religious underpinning to this, 
in that Spencer very much believed in the significance of creation and God's creation. He had a, a love and a respect for all living things. And he didn't privilege beauty. He took everything with, a, with an equal love, if you like. And this comes through in his landscapes in that he doesn't arrange compositions in a picturesque way. He will just paint what is there. Um, and even in, in some cases, in fact, there's a painting just behind you with a portrait that has um, some in the background uh, the church. And you may just be able to see that in the corner of the church here is a tarpaulin because at the time that this painting was being, um, being done, the church was undergoing some repairs. And I think many artists would have just painted out that tarpaulin uh, to make the church a bit more picturesque, but Spencer was like, no, it's there, and so I'm going to put it in. Um, and this is characteristic of his belief that everything as part of creation was equally worthy of love. Um, and that was his approach to portraits as well as to landscapes. I like that in a sense, yeah, the thoughtful look in her eye, and that he's, I, I like also that he's painted kind of a mature woman as a portrait, and it's a really lovely. Yeah, um, there's, there's actually a really sad story behind this um, portrait. This is Rachel Westrock. She was the wife of the vicar of Cookham. Um, and this was done in early 1959. Spencer had just come out of hospital um, for surgery after his cancer had first been discovered. And so he went to stay at the vicarage to convalesce. And, and the Westrocks were great friends and supporters of his. And so he painted this painting, this portrait, as a birthday present for the vicar, uh, Reverend Michael Westrock. But very, very sadly, the Westrock's young daughter had died just a couple of months before. Um, and they had other children as well, and Rachel Westrock was hugely busy um, as a vicar's wife, but obviously during the sittings, that would be a time that she would sit down and have some quiet. And I think in the time of those sittings, her thoughts inevitably would have gone back to her daughter who had recently died, mm. and Spencer himself had recently been diagnosed with a cancer that would go on to kill him within a year, and so I think the two of them probably had quite conflicted feelings um, and very much confronting mortality as the portrait was taken. Mm -hmm. And I think that you see that come across in her, in her eyes. Yeah. I hope, in a sense, we can't know, obviously, unless anything written about it, that this artwork was in some way, or them coming together, was in some way helpful, you know, going through that process, yeah. both of them, mentally. Mm -hmm. So thank you. It's wonderful to know. So I think I wanted to ask you next about um, talk about the style and also the subject of these paintings, but any kind of technical similarities between Stanley Spencer and the Pre-Raphaelites that we know he's processed? Yeah, I think also um, there are significant technical similarities. Um, we have here in the gallery a huge unfinished canvas um, that I mentioned before, Christ preaching at Cook and Regatta, and this is the painting that Spencer was working on for the last seven years of his life, and it's now around two-thirds finished. And actually, it's wonderful for us to have it here because the unfinished sections show us how he worked. And so around two-thirds of the canvas is completely finished, and the unfinished parts are just bare canvas, squared up, and with drawings. And so unlike some artists who may begin with a wash or a ground over the whole canvas, 
Spencer is just working on one section at a time and he's completely finishing before he then moves on to the next. And this also is a similar technique to the way that some of the pre-Raphaelites work. So having the white ground that then gives you the very bright colours. You have um, very clear outlines, pure, unblended tones. Um, and what you can also see in the grasses um, and flowers of the canvas um, is this incredible attention to minute botanical detail. Um, so I think there were also technical similarities. I mean, I don't want to kind of over-egg Spencer and the pre-Raphaelites yes. because there were certainly plenty of other influences that he had. Um, and I find it extraordinary to think that in 1912, he exhibited in Roger Fry's second post-impressionist exhibition alongside Matisse, Cezanne, and Picasso. Um, and they were also an influence on him. Um, obviously, for, for today, we're focusing on the pre-Raphaelites, but there are many different aspects of their work that translate through into Spencer's. Mm. It's a wonderfully busy scene. I like to see sort of which parts he prioritised first and painted. Yes, yeah. Um, he, you know, he, he kept getting distracted away from this by other commissions um, because this, you know, the size of it is about five metres long, so it was not an obvious um, seller. Um, but he came back to this whenever he could. And yes, he's really focused on these little groups of people lying in punts or um, one of my favourite details is a group of swans that are mobbing um, <laughs> some, some girls in a punt and I think he just became incredibly engrossed and absorbed in the, in the story that he was putting together on the canvas. Talking of sort of depicting contemporary life, um, and you mentioned before about um, him continuing to be interested in art and work on it during the First World War, some of the kind of wider, although it is debated if they're pre-Raphaelites or not, as it always yeah. is, artists like Evelyn de Morgan and William Henry Margotson painted depictions of the First World War and kind of brought to it quite a spiritualist. Um, it's often angels in these depictions. And I just wondered how um, Spencer Stanley kind of approached painting World War I, approached painting the war as somebody who's part of it. Yes, yeah, I mean, Spencer was um, on the front line in the war. He fought not on the Western Front, but in Salonika. Um, he went out initially as a medical orderly, having worked in Bristol as a medical orderly for um, a year or two, and then he went out to the front. And then in the very last part of the war, he was also um, an infantry soldier. And coming out of his war uh, experiences were two very significant artworks. One is a painting called Travois Arriving with the Wounded, which is now in the Imperial War Museum. Um, and that was commissioned uh, through the War Art Scheme and was part of the Nation's War Paintings Exhibition in 1919. Um, we actually have a little sketch of it that he made in somebody's autograph book just in um, December 1919. But his other great work that came out of the war was the uh, Memorial Chapel at Berkeley that is now known as the Sander Memorial Chapel. That is owned by the National Trust and is an absolutely incredible location and I urge anybody who has the opportunity to go and visit it. And Spencer was very different from many of his contemporaries. So um, you may remember that I mentioned that he was at the slave with Christopher Nevinson. Nevinson painted um, a very kind of militaristic, not in a glorified way, but he was really painting the kind of nitty gritty of machine gunners and explosions, whereas Spencer's 
portrayal of the war is about the ordinary life that goes on in the background of war. So it's not about what's going on in the fighting, it's about all the other hours that soldiers spend. So in the chapel, half of the mural paintings are of life as a medical orderly in Bristol and half of them are of the everyday um, life of soldiers in Salonika. And then at the end wall, the, um, there is this great resurrection scene in which soldiers are, are coming up out of the earth, uh, rising up on judgment day. Um, but it's like they've been asleep and they've just woken up and they're, and they're sort of looking about gathering their kit together and seeing who else has woken up. And it's, it's very um, warm and um, it's like a sort of reconciliation with what he had been through. Um, it's really extraordinary, so I would urge anyone to go and visit it. I love that there are two religious buildings, both the gallery here and that kind of dedicated to his work. It's lovely to have the two, yeah. two chapels. It's very Spencer, actually, very Spencer to be in a religious setting. Um, even if his, um, his, what he actually believed, you know, I think, I would have loved to have heard some of his conversations with the vicar because um, Spencer was quite uh, kind of off brief, if you like, in terms of his personal theology. Um, certainly on the Day of Judgment, in Spencer's view, nobody was being sent to hell. It was, it, it, Day of Judgment was essentially like a giant kind of birthday where everybody got their heart's desires. And can I ask you about um, currently what exhibition that you curated is here at the moment and what's coming in the rest of the year for people that want to come visit? Um, yes, so our exhibition on now is Most Love Works in the Stanley Spencer Gallery and we have drawn um, absolute gems from our own collection that have been nominated by the volunteers within the gallery. Um, so what you will see currently is the, the works that people feel their biggest personal connection with. Um, so it's really, we've got uh, a, an all-star exhibition on. That's on until the 26th of March. We then close for a few days while we install our summer exhibition and that will open on the 30th of March. That's called A Brush With History and it's in partnership with Southampton Art Gallery. We are borrowing um, works of Stanley Spencer's contemporaries, such as David Bomberg, Mark Gertler, and they will be put side by side with work that Spencer was doing around the same time so that we can draw out comparisons and contrasts. Um, and so do come along and see us. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I can't wait to come back and see it. And um, so anything else, Dr. Lynn, before we finish that you wanted to talk about that I haven't touched on yet? I think we've covered everything. Amazing. Thank you, Thank you so much for your time today. It's been lovely to talk about the gallery here and just learn a bit more about Stan Spencer. So thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Mm -hmm.